0: and welcome to The Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff.
1: My name's Tucker, and I just blew through all of the good content on Apple TV Plus in about 12 hours.
0: That was fast. (laughs) So, Tucker, is there anything special about our recording today?
1: Yes, here on The Daily Brain Bleed, we have a very special guest with us today. In fact, our very first guest on this program, consummate Hollywood insider and uh, filmmaker himself, Chris McElroy. Chris, how are you doing today?
2: Uh, hey guys. Uh, I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Why don't you, in your own words, introduce yourself to our guests and just kind of give us a, you know, an elevator pitch of your own career arc up to this point?
2: Wow. Uh, okay, so I am Chris McElroy. I uh, grew up in Kingsport, Tennessee uh, with Tucker and Jeff here. And uh, since then, I have moved to Hollywood, Los Angeles, California, and I have been working in the film industry for, I guess, four years now uh, on some really small stuff that nobody's ever heard of, like commercial stuff, and then uh, more recently, some bigger things that people have heard of, some, some Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, and I also, on my own time, make my own movies of which Tucker has taken part in.
1: No, I was just going to say real quick that it's interesting. Uh, Jeff said, oh, why don't you introduce him and do the bulk of the talking with you, Chris? But to me, it seems a little bit like journalistic malpractice in the sense that I've worked with you so much on the films that you've made. It's a little bit of a conflict of interest, right? It'd be asking, like asking Leonardo DiCaprio to just... uh, Pick pick on Martin Scorsese's brain, just like, so all those movies I was in the past 20 years, why don't you tell me a little bit more about me, you know?
0: And this is, this is just a reminder that, you know, there's absolutely no self-aggrandizing on this podcast whatsoever. We're just a humble couple of dudes, oh, you know, yeah. just talking, about, oh, talking yeah. about movies and whatnot.
1: Just comparing ourselves to Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah,
0: casually.
2: Yeah. You're, you're the Leonardo in that case, and I'm the Scorsese, I suppose. You are.
0: You are. So just for um, just out of my curiosity, what specifically like in the production process are you uh, involved with? Like what, you know, you don't have to get overly technical, but, you know, in kind of layman's terms, like what part of uh, film production are you involved with?
2: Uh, Honestly, it depends on the film. Uh, I have a new job like every three to six months. Uh, So let's see. Uh, big movies, I guess, that people have seen, I'll talk about. Uh, I was involved in the Hellboy reboot a couple years oh, ago. Oh, crazy. Uh, and I was part of the the VR production team. So they, they did a uh, behind-the-scenes kind of special promotional VR video. And I was uh, a big part of that. I helped edit and write it and all that stuff uh, and then shoot it as well. Uh and when we weren't shooting that promotional content, I was shooting behind the scenes stuff just for like the DVD of Hellboy basically. Uh oh, okay. So yeah, that was that was a really cool job because I got to be right in front of everybody. Like I got to watch them do the makeup for everything. I got to watch them build the, the sets. I got to to be right there as they were doing all the really cool stuff. Uh so that was that was what I did on Hellboy. Uh Let's see, what else? What other cool movies? I worked on Tenet back in 2019. Uh, and for that one, I was an office PA. So uh, the production office at Warner Brothers. Uh, kind of the the room where everything happens, where everybody's ideas float through. And then we help implement them all and make the movie come together. I was a production assistant there, so kind of just doing... Doing whatever was asked of me. That one involved a lot of uh, buying and sorting and dealing with film stock because Nolan loves to shoot on film. And it is a lot of work to store it all and do the logistics and have it shipped and all of that stuff. So that's mainly Mm -hmm. what I was working on for Tenet.
1: Yeah, no, uh, we were just kind of joking with ourselves uh, before recording. We were thinking of how to phrase this like, So can you tell us what you can about a tenant that wouldn't cause the Nolan snipers to come in and, you know, shoot you
0: where you sit right now?
2: Oh, geez. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How many non DA, how many NDAs can we get you to break (laughs) on air at the same time?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I've probably already broken them all. uh, Just by saying I was involved in the film. I'll be lucky if I survive the next hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so if, if chris yeah. just
0: stops talking huh? at any point just uh no you're fine if chris stops talking at any point he's just he's done they found <laughs> yeah. him they got to him
2: yeah uh i mean the movie's out now so hopefully i can talk a little bit more about it but yeah there was there was a good like year of my life where pretty much anything i said i was probably breaking an nda it was kind of bad right.
1: Right. And then like a few weeks where everyone was unsure the status of everything simply because they kept moving the release of the film like week by week by week by week last summer. It was just wild.
2: Yeah. No, that's the irony is, uh, you know, all this effort to keep things top secret and then uh, nobody watched it in the end. Nobody (laughs) even cared. No, I mean, like what, 60 million dollars worth of people cared, but.
1: I mean, you know, that's, it's obviously deflated to a degree by COVID, well, to a very strong degree. And, you know, and it's interesting to play the what if game, like what films would have been super successful in 2020 had COVID not just ravaged the landscape. I, I, I guess maybe Black Widow would have been the highest grossing film of the year, but honestly, who knows at this point?
2: Yeah. Um yeah who who knows i was banking on it being Tenant, but who knows I there guess, you go uh, <laughs> what did it end up being like bad boys for life I yeah i think
1: so i think so someone someone was made a really interesting point like early in 2020 it's like it's funny if you were to just look at the highest grossing films of the year up to that point without any knowledge of like the context of oh, <laughs> it's, it's like it, it would be like you were thinking
0: we were back in like 1998
1: yeah. Oh yeah, Bad Boys is the highest-grossing film
0: of the year. You know, maybe yeah. when we explain this time period, we won't mention COVID, and we'll just say that we degenerated film taste by you know a couple <laughs> decades, right. and then we all decided to go back to normal.
1: Yeah, actually, I think, I think the that the highest-grossing film of the year globally is a Chinese film that I am not very familiar with. I just know that it exists. I, I'm not even. I it, it. I think it's like a film about you know, the Chinese Civil War or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting thing. The fact that China arguably, you know, bounced back quicker meant that it just hastened the rise of the Chinese box office as the preeminent force in global moviedom. So that's going to be interesting going forward.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, especially the way Disney appeases the Chinese uh, market. Mm-hmm. I mean, Yeah. Def- I don't know if you, if you saw Iron Man Three, but there were a few scenes in Iron Man Three that were just catering towards a Chinese audience. Uh like oh. drinking the a milk. I think Iron Man drank a, a special brand of milk uh that the Chinese love. And it's just huh. it's kind of funny to see how Hollywood uh is trying to cater to both that audience and an American audience at the same time. Uh, and not only
1: that, I think in the case of Iron Man Three, they literally shot like scenes specific for the Iron Man for the, for the release in China that never made it to the States because it made absolutely no sense in the, in even like in the context of seeing it in a Chinese film it was literally just there to like give it some sort of Chinese connection. Like they hired some a Chinese actor to play the doctor who gets the thing out of Tony Stark's yeah, heart. Yeah, exactly. It's like, huh, okay. Uh,
0: well, I mean, wasn't the 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 villain in Iron Man Three is the Mandarin, correct?
1: Yeah, it was the yes. Mandarin, but but they <laughs> but they kind of like made him like the most culturally neutral version so of it. So ambiguous. They exactly. got Ben Kingsley to play a guy who was kind of, sort of, maybe Osama bin Laden, but not really. <laughs> and but he was called the Mandarin simply because that was the name of the Marvel character. So they were trying to thread a lot of needles there. And it's funny because they're actually going to do the real version of the Mandarin, the real version of the Mandarin in the upcoming um, Shang-Chi. Yes. yes. Which um, I think they feel like they can get away with because, okay, there's a Chinese bad guy, but there are so many um, Asians and Asian Americans in the cast that, okay, it's not like we're singling out any one person. So let's go for it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. Interesting how they've tried to dance around some of these uh, cultural insensitivities. insensities uh, while while still trying to appease a Chinese audience. I don't know. It, did you guys see the Meg? That's also another one that comes to mind.
1: Well, because that one that one, I, I'm actually mad that they took away from us the originally proposed R rated version of that movie. You know, they're like, oh, it can't be too violent because otherwise we won't get a release. And it's not even so much China, although China is a big thing about it. It's like so much of the world will not release films with too much violence. And another big thing is uh, LGBT content. A lot of not only China, but a lot of like Russia is another big country. Uh, Much of the Middle East will not release films that have so much LGBT content, so if it's there, it can't be so prominent that it can't be easily edited out like all of the bad jokes in our (laughs) podcast that we can just edit out. (laughs) um,
0: It's it's funny you should bring up uh, Russia as a big country because there are some other big countries that I think exist in the world, like India mm -hmm. and Australia. (laughs) Um, There are lots of big countries. I'm trying to contribute. Is it working?
1: No, you are working. Well, the the thing about India, we don't really have to worry about India, like strictly from a Hollywood business person's perspective, because India has such a a well-developed local film industry that um, there are a few American films that do respectively there. But mostly your average American blockbuster is not banking on doing well in India. And the nightmare of every Hollywood C-suite is that China's film industry gets fully mature to the point where like their movies our, like our movies, American movies, don't really play in China because they're just a bunch of Chinese films that fill the blockbuster gaps. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for um, the next decade or so.
2: Yeah. It, and if it's, it plays out, oh, I, go ahead. It's very influential. I mean, that, even like like Star Wars, which Americans love, obviously, uh, just can't seem to get a grasp on uh, on the Chinese viewers. And so that will affect like, how disney releases star wars movies in the future i i don't it, it just doesn't make it worth their while to make a billion dollar movie if you can only make you know a a couple million a couple hundred million in china you know you have to you have to make 600 million in china and 600 million in the us to justify it and uh, well and so at at it, what point
0: does the situ, does the resolution to that issue become lower the budget for the film so that you can actually support it solely on a domestic release. Like that's not the sexy answer, but at what point does that become viable ever?
2: Yeah. Well, and I, I do think we're actually seeing more of that with all these, uh, Disney plus shows, um, which, which is in part because of Netflix, but also because of the tentpole model is now sort of failing, I guess. Uh, if, if you can't get China on board, the tentpole doesn't work, but you still have a huge American audience and, you still have all these Marvel characters or Star Wars characters and you want to make content with them. So you could lower the budget slightly and make it a TV show. And that, that seems to work so far. So we're, and I I, I think we're going to see a lot more smaller scale, but still big scale in the grand scheme of things, as far as TV shows go. Uh, And I,
1: ideally that will force um, these studios to get more creative with the actual storyline and characters of the films, if only because okay, if we're giving you just like a cheaper version of a big blockbuster, we might do some at least we might as well do something creatively to distinguish it. It's like Deadpool, okay? It's a cheaper superhero movie, but we're gonna make it R-rated, and it is a legitimately very funny movie. Don't get me wrong. There there were so many things that went right with uh, Deadpool that that's how it distinguishes itself. Joker, right? Joker was a movie that. Would not, I think, have even get gotten made like five years ago, but then like Warner Brothers had to have gotten to the point where it's like, okay, our DC cinematic universe, well, DC extended universe, uh, it's kind of iffy as to whether it's going to take off at this point. So we might as well let Todd Phillips go and make some weird Martin Scorsese kind of throwback and it worked, you know, so hopefully we're going to see, and sure, a lot of these movies are going to be bad too, presumably because a lot of everything is going to be bad, but it, it's, it, it's better to see a bad film. That's interesting. in a, a lot of the times, than it is to see a technically good film. That's not really groundbreaking, at least in my experience.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think part of it is, uh, again, the, the whole tentpole movie idea that, works for Disney and works for Warner brothers every now and then, but obviously wasn't working for Warner brothers with the DCEU. So they just, yeah, they took a risk and they, uh, they went out on a limb and it, it worked. And so I think hopefully at least through like WB we'll, we'll see a lot more like risky movies being made a lot a lot more artful movies for lack of a better term. Um, well, I think we're kind of
1: dancing on the edge of the other thing that (laughs) dancing on the edge of the other thing that we wanted to really discuss this week. So we might as well just
0: bring it up, which is. Yeah, I've been avoiding dipping my toes in it for like a solid three different sentences now, because I just keep feeling like it's being very relevant.
1: Well, I mean, say what you will about Martin Scorsese, but he always knows which way the wind's blowing and he has his opinions about it. So he made quite a stir online for um, arguably posting another installment in this multi-part saga. Martin Scorsese has problems with the modern film industry. Um, He wrote an essay for Harper's that was nominally supposed to be um, extolling the virtues of Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini, uh, director of La Dolce Vita, a lot of other, um, great films, but, and, and he did talk about Fellini to a degree, but everyone's focusing on the first few paragraphs of the essay where he goes into a great de- degree of detail, um, decrying, How he thinks that uh, everything has been in Hollywood has been flattened to content. And I have noticed that that's a term that we use more and more over the past few years, referring to everything films, television, documentaries, what
2: have you. I believe I just used it a couple of minutes ago, actually. (laughs) Sure.
1: Sure. And because because that's how it's supposed to be processed right now. And he links this to um, the rise of streaming in that. Okay, if everything is being thrown onto the same streaming service, or at least the very least the same uh, relatively small number of streaming services, it's going to get to a point where um, you're going to see these art films on right next to the four quadrant lowest common denominator blockbuster, and um, so the the companies have like a vested interest in making you think that okay, this is all artistically the same, sure. And and again, they have an interest in doing this because it's their top content for all these things. And he's going to, you know, again, decrying what this uh, is going to do for the future of the industry. So did you
2: have any thoughts about this? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, I, I think I generally agree with uh, what Scorsese is saying. I mean, I think... The, the whole algorithm approach that he's talking about, uh, yeah, is, is not great as a viewer. I hate it. I hate that I scroll through Netflix and all the movies that it recommends for me are basically the same movie. I hate that as a viewer. Uh, and I think there are other viewers out there who probably don't think about it as much and just end up watching the same thing over and over. And I don't think that's good for a person or for art. Uh, you know, I think you need new ideas and you need growth and you need to develop uh, in as a person and as a as a consumer, you, you need to experience new things. Uh, so I totally agree with Scorsese in that respect.
0: What he actually so in the in the article, the thing that he brings up kind of as a counterpoint to algorithm based playlists is the idea of curated series of films and curated kind of collections of uh, films and that's something that I know like Spotify has a lot of curated playlists in addition to a lot of algorithmic playlists and so like he talks a lot about elitism and other things and I don't want to get into that discourse as much but I think that curate like having curators and people who make these playlists at netflix at your streaming services would definitely at least be like a step in the right direction well
1: there's a difference i think between what he's talking about what he's extolling and what a streaming service can do or at least theoretically can do because if you like he talks about the old you know art house theater's Um, that you had in the 1960s and the 1970s that were showing a lot of these independent films, such as The Scene Even Existed at the time, showed a lot of foreign films. And these were guys who owned the theaters who could not reasonably expect to make a lot of money doing this. They were doing this solely for the love of the game for the love of the art and were bringing in this eclectic mix of films that they wanted to showcase because they saw value in it whereas if you are a net, if Netflix were to do kind of a criterion type thing it could never be as pure because Netflix is a giant corporation that is also producing its own content. Like these guys who own these old theaters, they, they weren't filming their own things. They were they had to show someone <laughs> else's stuff, whereas Netflix is making m- movies that on some level, the people there, they want you to believe that it's artful. So, of course, that's going to bias their thinking on some level as to how they would show anything curated it's See, a business that yeah. just
0: makes me think about the amanda show bit where you have the people who run the uh the blockbuster-esque store and they're like you sold me x-men and they're like no we sold you z-men <laughs> is better you know what i'm you know the yeah. bit i'm talking about yeah, yeah.
2: well it's that would be uh, the bird box to the quiet place I <laughs> oh yeah. yeah oh yeah is uh. better <laughs> yeah
1: Birdbox was so bad and it just made me angry that like I there was a solid 12 hours on the internet of everyone wanting to convince me that it was the greatest thing in the world. So I, I gave into the peer pressure and I saw this and it, it was so bad. Well, okay.
2: That that kind of goes, I mean, that has to do with this algorithmic approach to uh, viewing movies. I, I don't, th- I mean, if Bird Box had been a theatrical release, I don't think anybody really would have seen it. It wouldn't have blown up the way it did. Uh, but because Netflix is so ingrained in like internet culture, uh, and it's, I remember- it's able to blow up that way.
1: And I very specifically remember this conspiracy theory people had of like with Bird Box and I think maybe a few other films that it was like, oh, Netflix, you know, they had this um, well of memes that they created that they had ready to go when the film released so they can spread them on the Internet to, you know, raise awareness of it. And I almost think that's giving Netflix too little credit. There doesn't have to be a conspiracy. They literally just have the algorithm and know what's going to organically take off anyway,
2: you know? Mm Yeah, um, you guys have actually talked about this on the podcast before, but I think Tiger King is the same exact thing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> everybody was home at the beginning of the pandemic, nothing to do. They just forced Tiger King down your throat. And how how can you not talk about Tiger King? You sure. know, like it's it's new, it's fresh, it's crazy. Like you know, it whether or not it's good is up for debate. Um, but how you know, of course, everybody's going to talk about it, and it's going to become a part of culture instantly.
0: Well, and to me, that's the epitome of content-based approach. And to be completely clear, I don't think a content-based approach is expressly a horrible negative detriment to the art. I think that there will always be a place for that type of creation, but it has to exist in tandem with the more artistic, more cerebral approach. And there has to be like the ability to have both things. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, Totally there's not I so to segue a tiny tiny bit just just so I'm on the record, I think Netflix and all the streaming services are actually uh, I know I've been talking about how bad the algorithmic approaches, but I think them as a service is actually really good for filmmaking and you know art and cinema uh because the theatrical experience, and Scorsese has talked about this was becoming. Uh, a theme park, just tent poles, and that was all you were getting out of it. And I think now, with all the streaming services, it's not so much about getting a hundred butts in seats, it's about getting as many subscribers as you can. So you make niche content and things that can be a little more artful and maybe lower budget. Uh, you know, instead of spending a billion dollars on one movie, Netflix spends a hundred million on 10 movies, and hopefully two or three of those 10 movies are going to be, you know, something valuable to society, I guess.
1: And I think one place where Scorsese kind of shows his bias, he notes that streaming is good. He, he, you know, he, he's a guy who's some of his recent films, like, uh, um, the Irishman have been made by streaming services. So he has to note, he has to concede that yes, streaming can be good for filmmakers such as myself, but I think he doesn't really think of it from the perspective of the consumer, which is that, and again, this is where his bias shows. He's a guy who grew up In New York City he was a guy who grew up in a place where you could have these art house theaters that would show all these movies from around the world and he could very easily go and experience that whereas if you were the equivalent of tucker and jeff and chris living in kingsport tennessee 40 50 60 years ago there was no way for <laughs> yeah, you to you'd, see
0: you'd be like wait who's frederick felony <laughs> like that's where you'd be coming for you wouldn't be like oh yes Frederico fellini like you, <laughs> you're not getting that right so now
1: theoretically anyone can see one of the art house films that netflix or amazon or whoever acquires from a steel and puts on their streaming service in practice maybe they won't but again it, in practice, everyone in New York City in 1960 or 1970 was not going to the art house theater. It just opened up the a- avenue for people who wanted to do that to go do that. And so this is, to an extent, being opened up to everyone. And I think it you can't really um, negate this in the way that I think Scorsese is doing here.
0: And something that you said, Chris, that I think... Um gave me like a little bit of a mental bounce off point was instead of one billion dollar movie, you do 10, hundred million dollar movies. And Scorsese talks a little bit about the development of digital cameras and how far like the technology has come along. And that just kind of like, I think that inadvertently he can also be talking about how with these more limited budgets, like the way that cameras are getting better you can produce something that looks very filmic and very cinematic without having to, you don't need an Arri Alexa to get a filmic look. You can do it a lot cheaper than that.
2: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I mean, I so with this recent movie that I made, I've been in a lot of film festivals with it, and I've been watching all the other movies in the festivals, and they're all made for, like, dirt cheap, like a couple thousand dollars maybe. Uh, And they some of them look incredibly high quality like could have been shot for a million dollars but they were shot for five thousand you know Um, it's it's incredible what these cameras can do today and what a simple editing software on a laptop can do
1: it's going to be great when we have a generation of auteur filmmakers who are not so solely attached to you have to shoot on film Right, because I love Tarantino, I love Nolan. Don't get me wrong, but it's like a weird cargo cult at this point. That it, it only <laughs> it only developed as a result of a very specific series of circumstances here, and you don't have to uh, reify that going forward. But they're choosing to, and I get it. It's their nostalgia, and they're free to do whatever they want. It's just come on. You yeah. see what I mean?
2: I I have this theory after working on Tenet, and I I can't exact I can't uh, talk about exact numbers. Uh, but we we spent a ton of money on film, like a gross amount of money. It was crazy, um, and I'm I'm pretty pretty much convinced there's like ten people that keep Kodak in business, uh, <laughs> and they're and yeah they're the 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 Tarantino's and the Chris Nolans of Hollywood because otherwise it, it's just not it's not a viable medium, uh, especially when. You have cameras nowadays and, uh, and LUTs and filters that you can use to make something shot digitally look indistinguishable from film. And I, I don't care what Chris Nolan says. I don't care what Tarantino says. It looks exactly the same. Uh, I know uh, there's... Uh, what I'm forgetting his name now, but uh, the guy who shot Lights Out and Shazam... Uh, um pony smasher on youtube what's his right david oh, f sandberg he, sandberg Yeah. Uh, so he uh he's kind of active on reddit and before he shot shazam he did a camera test where he shot some on film stock and some digitally and then applied a filter to the digital footage he shot to see if he could make it look ind- indistinguishable from the film he had shot and he ultimately decided yeah he it was indistinguishable and so he shot Shazam digitally because why spend oodles and oodles of money on film when it literally does not make a difference in 2021. It, it really doesn't.
1: Can I just say real quick? I love Shazam. Shazam was, I think the best recent uh, DC movie, I, I, the best DC movie I've seen yeah, since.
2: I totally agree. I, I loved it. It, it was slightly nostalgic without being like nostalgia porn, you know? Uh, right. And but, just a lot of fun, and had like a very, kind of like, uh mystic vibe too. I loved all this stuff with the the wizard in the cave. Like, uh, it was it was just a lot of fun.
1: Good. Movie. Yeah, it'll be real cool to see uh, Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam. But the thing about superhero movies and Scorsese, you can't have these conversations without noting again. This is the. Only the latest installment of a multi part saga. He's writing this essay. He received some very fierce criticism last year for um, describing Marvel movies as um, theme park rides, right? They aren't true art, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can take exception to what Scorsese says on any number of different points. But I thought the people who were protesting this so vociferously were, to an extent, telling on themselves. It reminded me of the debate back maybe 15 years ago when Roger Ebert was still with us. And he very neutrally said that he doesn't think video games can be art. He doesn't think video games can be art because XYZ, you know, checking off these boxes, I don't think it qualifies as such. And yes, He's an old he was an old guy. Even at the time he had his biases, which of course informed his assessment. But I can take him at his word when he said that, uh, you know, I was just trying to do an objective assessment here. I, I thought I, I don't think this counts as art. But then there are a lot of people who take that very, very personally. When you say that their favorite thing can't be art, they can't just enjoy it. It has to have some degree of aesthetic or social value here. And how dare you suggest otherwise? How dare you suggest that Thor, the dark world is not an equally good (laughs) film to drive. You know, that's the worst thing in the world. And that set off a multi-week kind of discourse uh thing that uh again everyone on every side of the debate was i think making the worst possible points in defense of their position but that's just
2: my thought i I think anyone who has ever tried to define or uh put a box around what is art uh inevitably just looks like a complete moron in the end because it you can't define art you know you can't define what somebody else values
0: Um, Yeah, that literally is. So I was about to talk about a very famous article by a writer named Adorno, and he talked about jazz. And he said, this is literally the dumbest, most moronic thing. And besides the fact that there was obvious racial bias from Adorno, like he got he has spent the last, you know, that article has lived for 60 years or whatever, and been completely eviscerated by everyone with a master's degree in the (laughs) arts for, you know, decades. And it's like you're allowed to come out and make takes like that, but you can't be surprised when people are like, um, actually that's wicked not how I feel about it and art is literally feeling, so like hop off. Mm-hmm. That's my that's yeah. my piece on I mean, that because people are trying so to do that to music cinema, forever. I mean, yeah, the music
2: industry is like who who's to say what qualifies as art within music, you know? There's you have like You can have classical, you know, classical music and then 60s rock and then like (laughs) garage rock in the 90s and then who knows what to just like noise rock today, you know, and that's just within the rock genre, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you guys in the sense that I think art is
1: subjective. I, I think any attempt to define it is ultimately fraught. But at the same time, I think that, you know, there is an interesting point in what Ebert brought up in his circumstance that I think applies today, which is why are people so um, defensive about what they have, what they see? It has to be art. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like they can't just enjoy it on its own merits. Um, they can't just, okay, it's my guilty pleasure. Well, some people still do the guilty pleasure thing, right? But I think more and more people are insisting that their favored franchise, be it Star Wars or Marvel or whatever the case may be, it has to definitionally be um, art because they find some level of value to it, which, okay, fine. I... I think that there's an issue here in the sense that I think that there are some legitimately great superhero movies that have come out over the past few years. I think Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse might be one of the greatest animated films ever made. I loved Logan. I loved Joker. I loved these. But you're only ever going to get the incentive for studios to make these films that take risk if you accept on some level that your average Joe superhero movie or any other sort of blockbuster is not doing the same thing. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you just, if you pretend that Martin Scorsese's point has no value to it, then um, what you're saying is, I, I see no difference between, say, Logan and, say, Thor The Dark World. These are equally good superhero movies. Just give me more superhero movies. I don't care what they look like. You see what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think it's a square rectangle situation. Like, I think that Scorsese saying there is no such thing as an artistic superhero movie is incorrect because I've seen artistic superhero movies. But I also think that saying, oh, well, because it's a superhero movie, you know, it must be art. Like we're, we're trying to make rules for things. And mm-hmm. it's like you need it needs to be more individually based on the merits of the work and less so like, oh, well, because it's an X category, it cannot possibly be Y. Does that make sense?
2: yeah totally agree and that's that's why i would say i i generally agree with scorsese but i i do think he's over generalizing there because yeah i mean some of the marvel movies can be considered art maybe not thor the dark world uh, right. no offense no. To <laughs> we're whatever. picking on that one a lot, <laughs> yeah. i know but yeah uh but yeah i think you know the first iron man movie is for sure art there's no doubt in my mind. i mean it, it was so culturally relevant it literally changed the cultural zeitgeist for the next decade at least so far so there like you have to say that iron man was art and what on its you know that that might just be a timing thing because of when it came out because certainly the new marvel movies have are very similar to the first iron man maybe not exactly the same but how could you say iron man's art and not say that avengers Endgame is an art you know sure And to be clear, I don't think
1: that Scorsese is discounting superhero movies in the way that they typically exist today because they are superhero movies. He is someone who... um uh, can a, ob, and publicly very much so has shown that he can appreciate all sorts of different genre films. For instance, I, I think when there's a big art book or something for Midsummer that came out recently, uh, Scorsese wrote the opening and talked about how much he appreciated this movie. And it's at the end of the day, a, you know, a horror movie, an artistic horror movie, but a horror movie. I, his objection, of course, to superhero movies is the same objection that he has to streaming in the sense that these massive corporations with no regard for individual taste or local taste or any sort of thing are pumping out the same big products that are meant to appeal to everyone and are flattening our culture. And that's, I think, what he's taking exception to. Yeah. The big and in process. that
2: regard, I, I totally agree with him. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah that, I mean, that, that makes sense. I guess it's just, I feel like the way that he articulates it makes it seem like he's coming, he wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's not necessarily. Conducive, yeah,
2: it, it's somewhat of an elitist sounding. <laughs> he
0: uses yeah. that word so much,
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing somebody out there loves Thor the Dark World. Uh, <laughs> somebody, you, and, are you willing to take a bet on that? <laughs> I mean, hey, look, I'll admit, uh, I don't hate Thor the Dark World. I mean, all right, okay, I don't okay. know, it, it's not my favorite movie, but. Yeah, I'm not going to, I didn't walk out of the theater and go, man, that was a waste of my time. I, that That is something about me. I guess I should let the the listeners know. I like love almost every movie I watch. I've seen every Godzilla movie. Uh, well, there, that, there's like they're there's, all art. They
1: are all art. Don't let anyone <laughs> tell you otherwise.
2: I love them. I absolutely, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that it's like a set and I've completed it and there's a joy in that. Yeah. Like anytime I start a series, I have to watch them all. You are
0: Metacritic's wet dream, by the way, that you love everything that you walk into. Like, you should be careful saying that someone's going to get a hold of you.
2: I, I just, I just love movies. No joke. I really, I, I do. I I think Tarantino kind of shares that same aspect. I think there, and so to go back to the whole cinema is art idea, there, there are things to be learned even from bad movies and, you know, something that can speak to you, even if it is kind of a, a a message that you, you learn not to do that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to desperately remember the plot to Thor the Dark World so I can so I
0: remember. should sit down and Thor the Dark World with a notepad and just try to invert it wholly Yeah, yeah. and I will come up with the perfect film uh,
2: I guess what you would do is uh, the next time you make Thor really fun and rainbow colored and Taika Waititi is the director is how you, that's what you learn from Thor the Dark World is how, hey, how to make rag- a good Thor movie after worked <laughs> Ragnarok was dope, I, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. Uh, why can't that
2: be art? Obviously, it can be. You know. And why can't yeah, no. Godzilla Final Wars be art? You know, that was like the twenty ninth one in the series, I think.
1: I remember seeing that all the way like back in two thousand six. I rented the DVD, and I thought this was. <laughs> I, I thought it, that was the time that it was the pinnacle of all art. In the world. Um, I,
2: I can honestly say i think that's the worst godzilla movie ever uh, but no, man no, I, had not, a, I had a lot of fun watching it
1: definitionally it cannot be worse because in the very movie itself the real godzilla kills the american godzilla from the 1998 version mm-hmm. which is the worst godzilla film and it <laughs> kind of demonstrates therein that they know they know
2: yeah, that, that is kind of funny you mentioned that. I, I had forgotten about that. But yeah, it's one really crappy movie bashing another really crappy movie. When if they both took a step back, uh, you know, it's a giant lizard terrorizing people. That's, I mean, that's, I
0: think that's I think that's class solidarity amongst monster movies. You know what I mean? Like just agreeing that you're just going to hate each other and just <laughs> kind of go ham in that way.
1: He says he needs to direct a kaiju film. He needs to direct a film like Pacific Rim. Dude, or...
2: Yeah, I mean, Guillermo del Toro, he, he's an art director, right? And uh, Sure, definitely. And he took on the challenge, and I love Pacific Rim. I thought it was great.
0: Can we get the kaiju to actually just be a giant decomposing Fellini? <laughs> <laughs> and he just comes out with like a big old style film camera the, the thing about Federico
1: fellini and it, to go, go back to the article itself is he wanted to make a flash gordon movie he was totally Wait, whoa,
0: up whoa, 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 hang on what
1: <laughs> yeah seriously he wanted to make a flash gordon movie because he's like i thought this character rocks it ultimately didn't happen <laughs> but
2: he you know that's a character from comic books you know that, that kind of reminds me of the uh the dune movie that david lynch made you know oh uh
1: which is not as bad as people want to say it is. Like, I can, let's be real here. Uh, like it's not, it's not a perfect movie,
2: but it's one of the. Go ahead. I am not going to be a Dune apologist. I, I that movie is weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm super excited <laughs> about the new one that is about to come out. But, uh, yeah, the David Lynch one. I just, I don't know. I remember it ended, and I was like, Wait, it's over. Like that was the movie. <laughs> I just, I had no idea where we were in the plot. Well,
1: I think we should normalize giving David Lynch tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to just do whatever he wants. And that was the only time Hollywood <laughs> really tried to do it. And I think for that very reason, we should hold it near to our hearts.
2: Yeah. No, and okay, so that is, that's another thing uh, to talk about cinema as art. I really, really enjoy when a director is just given a massive budget to do whatever they want. Uh, case in point, the Phantom Menace, which anybody who knows me knows that I am a huge Phantom Menace fan. I love the movie. Okay. And, okay. and I do think it's very interesting that this, the the prequel trilogy of Star Wars is one of the few times ever in history where a single mind, a single creator has been given just as much money as they need to make their vision happen. And there's something to be said about that as art. Uh, You know, the new Star Wars movies are commercialized Star Wars movies, whereas Love them or Hate Em, the prequel trilogy was George Lucas's vision, and that's his mm-hmm. movie. Yeah,
1: it's funny. Martin <laughs> Scorsese and uh, Francis Ford Coppola and everyone who joined in with them uh, last summer— I think when they were asked, either then or in the past or whatever, they gave a pass to the Star Wars movies. And cynics might say it's because, oh, they're buddies with George Lucas, so of course they're going to do it. But I think that if if we were to define art through the auteur theory of it having like a singular vision that is realized on the screen, then the first six Star Wars films are absolutely art. You might like them or dislike them, but they are a guy <laughs> saying, you know what? I have some very strong thoughts about how a galaxy far, far away is going to happen and how democracy fails and all these big things. And by God, he did
0: it. He has yep. really strong opinions about Jar Jar Binks <laughs> and He was Saboba the key to all this. And pod racing and <laughs> so, killing
2: younglings. <laughs> so, okay, hold on. I guess the to play devil's advocate, you could argue maybe they're not commercialized. Maybe they're his total vision. But at the same time, maybe George... Was trying to sell toys, and maybe that's the argument against Star <laughs> Wars art. You know what? Everyone's
0: got to eat. You know. I mean, George, you, you got us, bud. You got us real good. We all bought the toys. I went. I got the. Were they ever in a Happy Meal? Did they do a Star I, Wars Happy I, if Meal? If they were
2: not, I would. Be I know there was a surprised. collectible Doritos bag because I have oh, it. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it. Has Darth Maul on it.
0: You were supposed to bring balance to the force.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, geez, now that I'm thinking about it, Phantom Menace, as much as I love it, like every character in that movie is just designed to be cool and appeal to a six-year-old, you know, however old I was when it came out.
1: Right. Well, see, at least it was designed to appeal to a six-year-old in 1999 as opposed to the sequel trilogy where it was designed to appeal to what a six-year-old back in 1977 might've liked.
2: Yes. That is, that is a great (laughs) point, Tucker. I
0: don't know. Yeah. Now we just get Porgs and (laughs) baby Yoda and it's all about how, how well it'll look on like a Funko pop figure.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't. So, okay. So to bring George Lucas back into this, maybe he's the reason, I mean, he is part of the reason we live in the world we live in today. I mean, before Star Wars, the commercialization of movies, you know, the toys, the T-shirts, the lunchboxes, wasn't as big of a thing. And especially not until 99 with Phantom Menace. I mean, literally, Darth Maul was on everything, you know? True. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's, that's the model that Disney uses now.
0: Right. And now they've come full circle, Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, and they have become proprietors of that IP? Yeah. And now we just live in purgatory.
2: <laughs> Star Wars hell. It's not it's not a bad world to live in, honestly. No,
0: it's entirely livable. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but I do I, I do get what Scorsese is saying about, you know, the theme park and how we're that is that is the culture and we're stuck in it. It's a it's a vicious cycle.
0: But if I could just make a brief departure real quick, I think it's mildly disingenuous that and, you know, it's not the point of the article in so many words, but he doesn't bring up any modern directors that are doing exactly the type of work that he's talking about. Like, to say that there are no current directors working in the field who are doing this type of super detail-oriented, super holistic, creative approach. Like, have like have you watched Wes Anderson? Are you aware that the films exist?
1: I'm sure he is. I, I just don't think that was the point of the article.
0: I, I know. Yeah. I just... It just it it rubbed me in a weird way that he was just like, Oh, nobody's doing it this way anymore. Yeah. And, like, and I think it rubs people are kind of doing it this way.
2: way Jeff, I, th- I think you're, you're totally right there. Then that's why I think, even though I agree with Scorsese, I think that's why I have reservations about it because there's, there's tons of great stuff right now. And because of Netflix, because of Amazon and Disney plus it's at our fingertips and we can all experience it, you know?
1: But then that's, I guess, the problem it's that it's it's really discouraging when you see all this stuff at people's fingertips and the stuff that's you know can build a whole streaming services viability like peacock or whatever is hey we have the office that's what people are <laughs> that's what people are binge watching um Big oof. i don't know man
2: I mean, The Office is art. Why, what's wrong with The Office?
1: I'm not saying it's uh, not art. I'm saying it's, it's not a personality.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Is it one creator's singular vision brought up to the screen?
0: Uh, maybe. I'll Give it. me Fellini's Office, no, def- please. Definitely
2: not. <laughs> the, the U.S. version of The Office is not uh, one creator's vision.
1: We were also having this discussion earlier. um, So the anglicized uh, Federico Fellini is, of course, Fred Fellini. What kind of
2: movie is Fred Fellini a character in, Chris? Definitely a Scorsese movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, he would be one of the side characters, an Italian guy that everybody just makes fun of the whole movie, I feel like.
1: he. He literally eats meatballs
2: the, while the, he's selling stocks. The guy stocks. that Leonardo DiCaprio would pants halfway through. He's wearing movie. like a
0: chef's hat the whole time. He looks like Chef Boyardee, basically.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's that's, the guy always yelling film. at Leonardo, and Leonardo like always laughs it off, and then everybody laughs at Bellini.
0: See, now anytime I hear Wolf of Wall Street, I just think about when Jonah Hill had to eat like an <laughs> ungodly amount of sushi for those takes does everybody know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah, I yeah mean, you know
2: I I, I I don't not to get too off track but i saw a meme the other day uh it, it was really just a quote from aziz ansari talking about chris pratt and how normally on a film set you have like a spit bucket where when you're eating something in a take you spit it out when they call cut and then you know you don't eat all the food but apparently chris pratt would like eat legitimately like seven cheeseburgers uh because he'd eat a cheeseburger every take
1: i don't want to make this about me but i definitely did that for american sci-fi movie your film when i was the the priest <laughs> i appreciate who is-
2: it what we needed for the movie uh was a realistic look of a man at the end of his rope you know <laughs> who, had, who had just consumed way too much
1: I, I was excommunicated from the Catholic Church
0: because I ate too much. <laughs> it's gluttony. It's a deadly sin. That's true. That is definitely true. So, Chris, where can people find you? Do you want to plug any social media or anything like that?
2: Uh, yeah. You, I would rather you follow uh, my movies, Instagram and Facebook, than my personal, sure. uh, which is uh, American Sci-Fi Movie on Instagram. Uh, yeah, just one word, American Sci-Fi Movie. And uh, watch the well, movie. Uh, I, we didn't really talk about it on this, but Tucker's in it. And uh, I think it's funnier than I am live. <laughs> so <laughs> if you hated me in this podcast, then uh, give me a second chance once I've had time to write my words down. Uh, that's American sci-fi <laughs> for you.
1: Again, I am biased, but Chris's movies, everyone, they are art. They they obviously qualify. It's yeah.
2: not even question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Tucker. I mean, they, they are my vision and yeah, I don't have the millions of dollars, but yeah, I mean, I, Corey and I wrote it and uh, it was a passion project. And I think that has, that has something to be said about what is art. Um, Absolutely. Maybe it, it doesn't have some of the qualities that some people would look for in art, but it, it was certain, it came from the soul, you know, and I think that qualifies something as art.
1: Well, Chris, let me tell you this. Um, if you ever have anything you, you want to plug, any of your friends have something that they want to plug, or if you even just you know, want to get up on the soapbox about something, you always have a mic on this podcast.
2: Wow, I, I really appreciate that. that uh, this has been fun. I love this podcast. You guys do a great job. Uh, well, thank you.
1: Hey, I hear Disney's trying to acquire more content, more podcasts and everything. I want to be very upfront here. We will absolutely sell out. We yes. will sell out 100%. for an, em-
0: an embarrassingly low
1: sum of money by Hollywood standards. Oh, oh, I mean,
0: if it was even four figures, we're gone. Yeah, like, it's over. You can replace me with Mickey Mouse. I will tattoo Goofy on my left butt cheek. Like, done.
1: Replace us with CGI characters who are like, <laughs> you know, have AI generated voices. We don't care. You know,
0: please. Um, but I, I think that's uh, I think that's enough show for uh, today. So, again, uh, thanks so much, Chris McRoy, for joining us on this uh our first interview episode of the daily brain bleed
2: thanks for having me guys
0: everybody have a good week